Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So for this past year, I've been doing a lot of research on the benefits of face-to-face conversation and looking for ways to incorporate it more in my life. And one of the books I found extremely helpful in my research is a book called The Village Effect by uh, Susan Pinker. And in it, she highlights all this research, not just the psychological uh, benefits of face-to-face contact, because I think that's what we usually focus on when we talk about the benefits of conversation but also there's physiological benefits of face-to-face conversation. It, it reduces blood pressure, uh, increases longevity, and those just the, that's just to start with. So today on the podcast, I have Susan Pinker on, and we're going to discuss how face-to-face contact can make us healthier, happier, and smarter, and how you can get more of it in your life. Let's do this. Susan Pinker, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, so your book is The Village Effect. Uh, it's all about the science of face-to-face conversation or interaction. I'm curious, was there an experience that you had that inspired your decision to research and write about the benefits of face-to-face conversation? There was, in fact. You know, when I finished my last book, which is called The Sexual Paradox, I was struck by a puzzle, and that's that everywhere in the developed world, uh, women live on average five to seven years longer than men do. And this sex difference in longevity really puzzled me, and I decided to pursue the question, why is that? And I found out a couple of things that started me off on the journey of writing this new book. One was there is one place in the world where men do live as long as women and where people live extraordinarily long lives in general, and that's a place in Sardinia, part of Italy, and I decided to go there and explore a little bit more about what's going on there. So that was one of the reasons. And the other is that I found some emerging research from the field of social neuroscience that was very clear that our relationships have a huge impact on how long we live and how healthy we are. Well, I think that's interesting. Most people think about, when they think about social interaction, they think how it it affects you emotionally, all right? It's good for if you're depressed, you need to get out there and speak with people. They don't really think about the the physiological benefits of it. So what did you discover in this uh, small town in Italy? What was it about social interaction that allowed, that contributed to longevity in both men and women? Well, I'm going to give you two answers to that question. In terms of Sardinia, 
what was most striking in terms of the experience is that older people and people there live into their hundreds and many till, uh, you know, 105, 110. And what's extraordinary is that unlike here in North America, they are never left alone. They are always surrounded by friends and family. And that struck me, especially since I was creating a radio documentary about this phenomenon, and I could never get any clean tape because they were always surrounded, as I say, in their living rooms with, you know, four, six, sometimes eight people who were constantly with them, which is very much in contrast to the way we age in America, where, you know, um, essentially you're left alone most of the time, Um, you know, where solitude is part of your experience. So that's one part of the question. And the other part of the question is that there's new emerging evidence from the field of social neuroscience that your body and brain really don't distinguish between emotional and physiological benefits or harms. In other words, if you feel lonely or if you feel sad or abandoned or isolated, that is going to have a direct impact on your heart rate, how well you heal from wounds, how you know, easily you're going to uh, lose your memory, how well you're going to recover from cancer. And this was like completely shocking to me and very new. And I thought it was interesting throughout the book, you talked about um, the differences between men and women. You talk, you call it the female effect. How does socialization affect men and women differently? Well, for one thing, women have evolved specific hormonal pathways that allow them they, we've evolved them initially to allow us to communicate with nonverbal babies and, not, and children, small children. So when women reach out to others, oxytocin is released, and this makes them feel great, but it also taps down their stress levels and increases their immunity, not just oxytocin, but dopamine and other neurotransmitters and hormones. So that's one of the physiological clues. But... It also has to do with the way women live their lives and the priorities that they set for themselves. I mean, research from social science tells us that women spend a lot more time building, grooming, prioritizing their relationships. I mean, most people can see that they spend more time initially, you know, talking over their porches or back fences than using telephone. Now it could be using Skype. But in general, they choose jobs where they work with people they like and respect, where they have a lot of social contact, and they tend to enjoy life much more when they spend time with friends and family, and they make that priority number one. On average, this is not the same for men. So one of the really huge sex differences is what happens when you lose your spouse. This is uh, a piece of research called the widowhood effect. We've known this for several hundred years, that men who are single die faster than men who are married, and especially men who are married who lose their wives are at tremendous risk of dying themselves within the first six months to a year after they've been widowed. This is not as true for women, and it's not because women aren't as sad to lose their spouses. It's because women tend to have established huge support networks outside their marriage. And so they have lots of friends and family who are there for them, whereas for men it's much more often the case that their wife is their only intimate contact. Not only that, but their wives bring in 
friends and family. Their wives are the ones who invite people for holidays, who send the cards, who make the phone calls, who send over, you know, the casseroles or cakes when someone is sick. So when they lose their wives, suddenly their social, their face-to-face social network falls away. I thought it was interesting how you pointed out how the differences between men and women socialize. Not that men don't socialize. Um, you said that women focus on more of those tight-knit, close relationships, and men are more focused on weaker ties or bigger uh, groups. Is that correct? Yeah. I'll tell you a little anecdote of a couple of people I profiled in the book, and this was another uh, occasion when I was very much surprised by my research. So I interviewed one fellow who I introduced to the reader at the beginning of the book, John McCogan, who's a musician and he needs a kidney transplant. And he had four compatible people in his network who stepped forward. And this was partially because um, of the type of outgoing, gregarious person he is. But when I asked him, oh, like, give me an example of some of your friends, he flipped open his phone and he had 350 social contacts. So he had this enormous network, but many of them were people he hadn't seen in many years. And in contrast, one of the women who I thought was fantastically socially integrated into a community was a great civic participator, had a lot of friends, swam on a swim team, etc. You know, she, when I said, well, how many people are in your social network? She said 15. And what was striking about that is that that surprised me, but that's actually very typical because... Women tend to have very tightly knit, well-integrated, well-interwoven networks of people who will step forward and help them when they need it. Men to have, tend to have much larger, more dispersed social networks, weaker ties. So think of, for example, all the men that someone might know who's been in the military or who's been working in a huge multinational corporation. Are these people who are going to step forward to bring him to his chemotherapy appointment? Probably not, or there will be very few. Or who will step forward if he needs to borrow $1,000? Probably not. So when we look at networks, men's networks on average tend to be larger but shallower connections. Women tend to have smaller but more tightly knit, interwoven social lives. So many more intimate contacts that they keep in touch with. And when we, social scientists distinguish between those two kinds of contacts, and we need both of them. We need the close-knit contacts, and we need the kind of looser ones that we have with neighbors, colleagues, and friends in the community. So the close ones we call social support, and that's a hugely powerful predictor of our health and how long we live, how many of those contacts we have and how strong they are. But our Weaker contacts are important, too, and what's really important about that, Brett, is that that's changing now. Um, We have many fewer of both types of contacts than we used to even since the mid-'80s. So in one generation, our our face-to-face contacts are diminishing. I mean, it's kind of... I guess the bridge of the question is, so it does, like, social media and email and texting... That has no effect on our health. That has no effect on our, you know, the, you know, the benefits that come with weak ties. So it has to be face-to-face? It's early days, so I can't say it has no effect. I would say it has um, a differential effect depending on who you are. So I think 
you could say about your contacts over the Internet that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So people who are already outgoing and gregarious and get out there and meet people and see people, well, they just use whatever online tools they have to do more of that. Okay, But what is concerning many social scientists is that people who don't feel comfortable going out there and meeting people, perhaps introverts or people who work long hours or just don't feel that comfortable reaching out, they use sometimes online contact as a substitute as opposed to to amplify their real social lives. And, And that's what's worrisome. So I don't think it's fair or true to say that the Internet is um, unilaterally a bad thing or erodes our social lives, because I think it's just not true. I think what is true, though, is that people tend to conflate the two types of contacts, and that is a huge myth and a problem. It would be like saying um, eating a drive-through fast food meal in your car is the same thing as sitting down with a group of friends and having a home-cooked meal, you know, over wine and chatting for a couple of hours. It's just not the same. It might still give you a hit of 2,000 calories, but the impact on your body and brain is completely different. And everybody now acknowledges that there's a difference between, say, you know, eating a chocolate bar and eating a home-cooked meal or going to the store to pick up meal with you, pick up milk with your car versus walking there or biking there. We all acknowledge that. But when it comes to social contact, which I might add is the most powerful predictor, lifestyle predictor of how long you will live compared to almost anything that you can control, we still haven't reached the point where we've acknowledged that there are two di- there's, there's various different types of contact and they're not all created equal. So, I mean, what's going on with face-to-face contact that you you can't get in social media or text messaging? I mean, what is going on between the two individuals? Well, for one thing, that the honest signals that are communicated don't come across over the screen. I think we're getting better at it, at getting those signals. But, for example, you know, when you're in person and you're communicating with somebody... You move forward, the other person moves forward. You move backward, the other person moves backward. You might sort of raise your eyebrows, and instinctively the other person does too, showing their surprise at what you're saying. And all these um, synchronous little cues and acts that you're together in communicating and receiving the message communicate a sense of trust. And it's very difficult for that to happen over the Internet. Um, There are other things, a little, like, even a little pat or high-five or handshake or, you know, a little slap on the back, those release those hormones and neurotransmitters that are incredibly powerful in terms of your uh, cognitive abilities, your ability to handle stress. Like, the minute somebody touches you in a friendly or supportive way, you get a rush a release of oxytocin, and that those floods of hormones and neurotransmitters just don't happen over the Internet. What happens over the Internet is you get information, and information is incredibly useful if it's a useful part of communication, but that's not everything that we get out of communication. When we're mammals, essentially, and we've evolved 
to see the whites of each other's eyes, to be able to understand and generate trust by being near each other. And people who underestimate the kind of um, nonverbal signals that happen together when you're in the same place are making a huge mistake. So, for example, we know now that in salary negotiations, if people are together in the same room and mimic each other precisely, even saying the same words back and forth, the person who's in the position of requesting a salary increase is going to enjoy a 20 to 30% boost in salary if all they do is mimic the other person. It has an enormous impact. And we can measure this now in terms of, you know, it's ironically little iPhone-like devices called so- sociometers. You can measure, if you take away the content of we- what's being said, you can measure the signal that happens face-to-face and how powerful it is in generating, say, um, who is the most, in understanding who is the most cohesive in the group. Now, let me rephrase that because that's not quite true. It is. It can predict, these sociometers can predict by crunching all the data who will be the leader in a group or which groups will be most co- cohesive. So I think we, you know, to reiterate, we make a mistake when we conflate internet-generated types of communication with the face-to-face type of communication. They're um, just different. Yeah. So going on this idea of like mimicry and being in sync with others, you talk about how religion, uh, church, is a great place for this to happen. I mean, how does religiosity contribute to uh, someone's social well-being? Well, there are a couple of ways. Um, What scientists measure when they look at religious uh, participation is just that, how often do they go do people go to church how often do they participate in church activities because they can't get inside your brain and find out how powerful your belief in god is but what we do know is that the more you participate in religious activities the greater your benefit in terms of your health and i think that the impact is really the social element you are with people you have an automatic sense of trust by doing things together at the same time. You, it's a, religion is kind of a shortcut to all sorts of evolutionary ways of knowing that you're with people who are like you. You bow and sing at the same time. You help each other. You know, you know people who are religious tend to give more blood and give more to charity, for example. And all of these acts pull you together as a group, um, and that has an impact on your physiology. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, the example you gave of the, the pastor who would have his congregation, like, say things to each other, and you're like, that guy probably read neuroscience studies, like, he's doing exactly what he should be doing if he wants to encourage uh, group cohesiveness. Yeah, and, and what was so surprising to me is that, you know, as you started out, when we started to chat, with the question of, this is not fuzzy stuff. When scientists say, like uh, Julianne Holt Lundstad from uh, Brigham Young University studies everything about your lifestyle, so she takes a huge group of people, 40,000 Americans, and measures everything about them, their weight, how much they drink, whether or not 
they're married, where they live, whether they've smoked or have given up smoking, whether they get a flu shot, whether they've had a heart attack, whether the air they breathe is clean or polluted, everything about lifestyle that we think so much about, especially things like diet and exercise. And then she just sat still and watched who would still be living and breathing after seven years. And found that the most powerful predictor, lifestyle predictor, was social contact, more than smoking, more than exercise habits, more than your body mass index, more than your weight, more than cardiac rehab, you know, more than drugs for hypertension, more than polluted air. Your social contact was the strongest predictor of how long, who would still be alive after seven years. And that really struck me, not just one type of social contact, but two types that I mentioned before, the intimate social contact that you call, we call social support, and what's called integrated social support, how much you get out there and participate in your community. You know, how, you know, how often do you get away and out of your office, away from your computer, and see people, whether it's for, you know, civic participation, like playing hockey or bowling or volunteering in your church or elsewhere, or if it's just chatting with your neighbors or card games. It doesn't actually matter what you do. It just matters that you get out there and do it. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. 
Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Well, one way that um, serious static. Are you hearing that? You hear, no, I don't hear any static. Okay, at all. all right. I heard some static. Okay. Well, in one way that people get out there and socialize is through food, and I'm curious why. What is it about food and drink that brings people together to talk? Because um, anytime someone wants to get together, they're just like let's let's eat and drink. Is there an evolutionary reason behind that? I think that there is. I know, you know, in the in the village effect, I talk about how when humans evolved and changed from being kind of solitary hunter gatherers to living in communities about ten thousand years ago, and that was when agriculture started more or less. Essentially, that's when we had the first evidence of community meals or community feasts, and. I think it's extremely important in pulling people together and allowing them to trust each other. I mean, think about it. At a meal, you're usually sitting face-to-face with people and talking. And what's a little bit, I guess, unnerving about how this has changed in recent years is that now people bring their devices to the table. It used to be that there was television on while people were eating, but now people might be eating together and looking at their phones. And I think that many of us realize instinctively that we are kind of lessening the experience or getting less of a benefit when we focus on the screen instead of on each other at meals. And that's what is, I'd say, kind of new emphasis, especially among the hipster generation or the millennials, to stash their phones before they sit down and have a social occasion, whether it be a meal or drinks together, whatever, because they know 
that part of the experience of eating and drinking is what happens, not just what you put in your mouth, but as you look at each other and have that back and forth. Yeah, I mean, what are some of the, the what is, what's the research said about the benefits of, you know, particularly for family meals on children? Well, that, that just knocked my socks off. Because essentially, if parents just want to change one little thing about family life to improve their child's prospects, it would be to have more meals together as a family. And it sounds kind of hokey, you know, but all the research is pretty much unanimous. And that, it's very rare in social science for people to agree. But this is one area where there's almost no dissent, that the more often families eat together, um, the less likely their kids are to drop out of school, to have problems with drugs or with anorexia or with uh, child, you know, teenage pregnancy. Essentially, it's a huge predictor of how well they will do in school and how long they'll stick with it. It's a huge predictor of their verbal skills and their reading skills. Now, the why question is somewhat more complex. I don't think we can say that that easily why family meals predict all these great outcomes for kids. But I would hazard a guess that when you're together over a meal, sometimes that's the only time a family is together. I mean, when I was a clinical psychologist, I would often ask parents, you know, when do you spend time with, you know, Johnny or Jenny or whatever? And most of them, most parents just said, in the car. Okay? But in a family meal, you're usually face-to-face. You are talking about your day most of the time. You can offer support. You can generally communicate and show some emotional connection with your kids. Because what is, I would say, interesting and alarming about American family life is that much of family life is spent alone. You're in the house together, perhaps, but everybody's in their own room doing their own thing on their own device. Whereas at a family meal, you're sitting down at the table and you're interacting. And it's the interaction that's key. Well, going off of that, um, so in the past few years, there's been increasing alarm um, about screen time, uh, particularly for children. Was there any research yet about how screen time affects children's social and intellectual development? We don't have all the answers to that question yet, and some of the, a lot of the research is correlational, so we don't know what comes first. But we do know that it's what we call a dose-response effect, meaning like the more you drink, the drunker you get, the more screen time the kid has, really the dumber he is in school. It's really a very brute, unkind way of saying it, and the more behavior problems he or she has. You want to have an impact on your child's social skills and academic achievement, reduce screen time. It's absolutely, you know, astounding how, like, essentially how the research is pretty um, unanimous about the effect of screen time. Now, of course, I think there are kids who are immune to this. There are kids who will do well in school no matter what. These tend to be high-income kids kids where parents are investing a lot of time and money in their education and their stimulation. And I would say for those kids, probably a little bit of screen time or a moderate amount of screen time is probably not going to make a huge difference to them. Um, 
But I would say the middle range of kids and the lower range of kids, either kids who don't get a lot of time, their parents' time, either because their parents are working constantly to keep their heads above water financially or because they're single parents and they just have to do it all by themselves or because they're newly arrived to the United States or for a whole host of reasons, those kinds of kids are at higher risk of doing more poorly in school because of increased game playing screen time. Because what we know is that, you know, obviously not all, in, not all time spent on the screen is the same kind of time. Some of it could be hugely interesting. You could be reading books online or doing all sorts of challenging things. But what we do know is that really the path of least resistance is the rule. That if kids are going home and nobody's monitoring it, they're watching movies, they're downloading movies and porn if nobody's home to monitor what they're doing. And we do know that they're essentially American kids and British kids are spending more time on the screen on, on any other activity, including sleeping. That's the Pew Internet research that tells us that. So for preschool kids, we're talking about four to five hours at least on the screen a day. They're sleeping more than that, of course. But for school-age kids and teenagers, they're spending more time alone and online than they are doing anything else, socializing with their parents, with their friends, or in their beds. Let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, you know, for our listeners who have kids who are teenagers, uh, you talk about cyberbullying. And I think just recently there was a case here in the United States where a young person committed suicide because of, of the bullying they received online. What is it about the technology that encourages that sort of behavior uh, online? It's anonymity. And so the fact that really it's the Wild West out there, nobody really has to own up to the horrible things they say or do online. And, you know, I'm hoping that will change. Um, for example, in, in Canada now, cyberbullying has become a criminal offense. But, um, and, I, and I don't know what will happen, you know, the more teenagers commit suicide, perhaps there'll be more emphasis on that. But because people do not have to put a face and a name to the, what they say or do on the Internet, there's a lot of aggression. There are trolls who do awful things on the Internet. And the difficult part is that parents cannot really monitor everything that their kids are doing on the Internet. Certainly at younger ages, they can control it because they're paying the bills. So they can control how many devices the kids have, if they get their devices in their rooms, if they're allowed to have their computers or phones in bed with them um, or at meal times, And they're essentially controlling the purse strings. So they should be able to be, be able to say who has what and when to turn it off. But as kids get older, it's harder to know what they're doing online. And, and that's really difficult because it can have a huge effect on their ability to concentrate and be happy. Yeah, and does the, like, the, I guess the lack of honest signals uh, contributes as well? Because, I mean, you could possibly know who someone is online and, like, just see an avatar of them, but it's not the same as being with them face-to-face. -face. No, it, you know, that is, I think, a huge mistake, and I think that, you know, especially for kids who might be vulnerable, and parents mostly know who that is. They know if their kids are fragile and vulnerable, and they worry intensely about them. 
those, the vulnerable kids, the ones who are socially isolated, the ones who are struggling in school, the ones who are at some point having a difficult time, are the ones who will be more open to going online more often and seeking contact online with strangers. And that's where the danger lies. Okay. So I thought your section on dating love is really interesting because uh, more and more frequently, because people don't have these villages, right, face-to-face contacts as much as they used to, they're going online to find love. Um, But can you talk about some of the research that shows that online dating isn't all that, it's not cracked up what it's all, you know, it's not cracked up what it's to be? Yeah, I mean... I would say that any way that you can meet somebody that allows you to form a rewarding relationship is great. So I'm not knocking dating sites, um, you know, I'm not knocking them in general, but what I am knocking is their ability to predict who is right for you. There's no evidence at all that their so-called algorithms do anything of the sort. And what often happens on dating sites is that people lie about themselves so you don't actually know who you're meeting when you set up a date and nobody is monitoring that and the research tells us that you know it's actually comical that men tend to exaggerate their height and their income online and women tend to diminish how much they weigh and how old they are online so, as, you know, one of, the, one of the people who I quote in my book said he learned when he, he went on something like 60 online, 60 dates of women he'd met online, and he learned to watch out for sunglasses because, you know, women would wear sunglasses to disguise how old they were. And even in their photos, if they post photos of themselves, you know, 10 years when they were 10 years younger. Um, so I think it's more, not that online dating sites are bad, but that... There is really no regulation about what they're promising you, and it's essentially a consumer environment out there. So very few people would go out and buy a car or buy a treadmill or make any huge decision without doing their homework first, and yet they engage in a lot of activity and invest a lot of time and effort in meeting people on these sites where there's absolutely no regulatory environment. So it might be good just to, it's a great way to get you out there meeting different people, that face-to-face contact, then that's the moment where you could figure out this is something that will be worth pursuing? I think, I think that's one thing it's great for. I think, for example, if you live in a rural place and you don't have a, a way to meet people, um, that's a great thing. I think that you have to be wary and you have to set certain, I guess, limits on what kind of contact there will be online. But yeah, I mean, I would say that anything that gets you out there meeting people in a safe environment is a good thing. And so, you know, some of the dating sites can be, you know, very useful to people if they use them judiciously, just as they would for anything that they're, quote, shopping for online, as long as you realize that it creates that Christmas shopping feeling. Um, You know, I've, I've had a lot of contact with friends who you know, single women who, when I ask them, well, what are you looking for? Well, because they've had the online experience, they give me a list of categories or criteria where there, there is no man alive who fits those criteria, you know, certainly not in their age bracket. So it creates unreasonable expectations that can never be fulfilled. 
Whereas when you meet somebody face-to-face, no matter how you get together, um, you get the whole gestalt of the person, how you get how they look, what their skin smells like and feels like, how they make eye contact. Are they a good conversationalist? Are they a warm person? Do they feel like a cold fish when you get together? You can't get much of that online at all. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Pinker, as I was reading your book, I was, you know, I, I get really excited. I was like, this is amazing. I need, I need more of this in my life. But at the same time, I was, I was frustrated because I feel like a lot of, particularly American culture, isn't conducive for, you know, a village life, right? We're, we're more, tra- we're transient. People move, families are separated from each other. Uh, you have people working from home. They don't have that face-to-face contact at work anymore. Are there any practical tips that you can give people on how they can recreate a quote-unquote village in their own life, despite the culture that doesn't help that? Yeah, I mean, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that built about building a village. You know, when I I called the book the Village Effect, some people thought I meant like, yeah, well, we should all move back to a village, and and I'm saying no such thing. What I mean is that we need to create a village around us to mimic the kind of effect that those Sardinian centenarians had. And anybody can do that. You're quite right that in North American culture, our lives are, you know, as George Burns quipped, you know, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. Many of us don't want the responsibility of maintaining intimate relationships anymore, and we are transient. So how do you build that? And, and I would say start with the bricks and mortar stuff of where do you live? You know, if you're moving, what kind of place do you choose to live in? And I would say if you have the luxury of choosing a new place, choose a neighborhood where people know and talk to their neighbors. Don't just look for how big your closets are and <clears throat> how many garages you have for your car. Look for the places in your neighborhood where people connect. Are there sidewalks? Are there what are called third spaces or third places where people get together, like coffee shops or little parks or, you know, any kind of area where people congregate? Um, It doesn't have to be something as formal as a community center, but it has to be an area where people are outside and walking around. If you're looking for a place to live and you're driving around and it's empty, I would say give it a pass. Look at your work life. Build real contact into your workday, not just emails. I mean, you mentioned that many of us work alone, and as a writer, having a solitary work life, I can say for myself, is one of the hazards. And I had to really craft social contact into my day in a very um, intentional way. So, for example, I used to swim laps at the YMCA by myself. Now I swim with a swim team. That way I get the double whammy of the exercise and the social contact with people. And I get it three times a week. I also get a coach, which is much better for my fitness level. But even at work, let's say if you don't have time to, say, do something like sports or, or, or with colleagues, get up and talk to people at work. Don't just shoot emails all day. If you work in an office with other people, move around. It's good for your body to move around and talk to people face-to-face, and it generates trust, and it's good for your business. And I have a whole chapter in The Village Effect on how it increases your profits. There is What's really interesting is that the really higher echelons of business, people do not communicate about big deals 
over the Internet. They get on a plane and talk to each other in person. You know, if there is diplomacy that has to be done, if there's a huge deal that's going down, people get on aircraft and talk to each other in person. And we have to let that filter down to us at all levels. So I think it's really important to, if you have a solitary work life, build social contact in, um, in some way into your work day. Um, if you have kids, as we talked about, nothing predicts school success and happiness like face-to-face contact. Commit to face-to-family meals without screens. Control how much time your kids spend online and ramping up only gradually as they get older. And choose schools where the emphasis isn't on the high-tech toys. Um, we didn't really talk about education that much, but the evidence is absolutely clear that there is no digital program yet that is proven as effective as time with a trained teacher. Um, so a lot of that is the bells and whistles, I think, has really uh, bamboozled people. Um, and it's very concrete, of course. You know, you spend $1,000 on, uh, on a laptop, a tablet, and all the accoutrements, but really what matters is what's going on between the teacher and your child. And And here's something that, I think is really important, Brett, in terms of building your village is make sure you create a village of diverse relationships. And that was another thing that was completely new to me when I was researching the village effect is that it's not just those close contacts that matter. It's not not just like your two or three close people, but the group of different types of people in your social set who make a difference to you, the integrated social networks. So, you know, that was what happened in Sardinia when I'd arrive at a centenarian's house. You know, the neighbor would be there and the priest would be there and the bartender maybe. And it wasn't just the person's daughter or son or next door neighbor. And that's what we have to mimic is get to know your neighbors, get to know colleagues, get to know the shopkeeper where you, you know, buy whatever it is once a week. Talk to people often and develop those diverse contacts and um, kind of like like a ten- the tentacles of an octopus, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. as opposed to just looking at the sort of fingers on one hand. You have to reach out in your community and establish those weaker connections and keep them up. And, you know, something that we didn't get to talk about is your temperament. Everybody's different, Right. Not everybody is going to go to a potluck dinner or a buffet and put the same thing on their plate. And social contact is a biological drive, just like your other appetites, like your sex or how much food you eat or the kind of food you eat. So you have to adjust the ratio of your face-to-face contact to your screen contact and your solitary time, just the way you would adjust what you eat according to your appetite. So if you're kind of an introverted person, you might want to have the kind of contact that you feel comfortable with, Um, you know, not what other people think might be good for you. So interestingly, we know that introverts are just as, they need social contact as much as anybody else does. They just need to control it differently, and they need their alone time. But, you know, if introverts don't get social contact. We know, for example, they catch more colds, paradoxically. 
they recover less quickly from chronic disease. So everybody needs social contact, but certainly just like everybody needs food and drink, but they just have to determine what it is and, you know, how they get it. Um, so I would say that adjust the face-to-face to screen time according to your temperament. And, and I'd like to end with that is that we're all online now, but amplify your online contact with real contact. Use your devices to get together with people. And there's so many applications now that help us do that. There's almost no excuse not to get out there unless you're making the mistake of considering, you know, essentially your screen time is pretty much the fast food of your social interaction. Fantastic. Well, Susan Peeker, this has been just a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for your interest, Brett. My guest today was Susan Pinker. She's the author of the book, The Village Effect. And you can find that book on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And you can find out more information about Susan's work at susanpinker.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you haven't already, I'd really appreciate it if you go to iTunes or Stitcher Give us a review that helped get the word out about the podcast as well as give us feedback on how we can improve the show. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.